Hello, I'm Steph. And I'm Mel. And this is East Asia for All, a podcast about East Asian pop culture and media. If you're listening right now, you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian films, cartoons, memes, music, and much, much more. Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan since 2007. We also both have PhDs in Chinese history, and we're both working as professors in the Midwest. I'm at St. Olaf College in the Departments of History and Asian Studies. And I teach history at St. Mary's University of Minnesota. So we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the Ivory Tower, and making it available beyond our classroom walls. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is about The Handmaiden, a 2016 film by South Korean director Park Chan-wook. Of old boy fame, if you keep up with Park's filmography. The Handmaiden has a really interesting lineage. It's an adaptation of Sarah Waters' 2002 novel, Fingersmith. Waters' novel is set in Victorian-era Britain, and it's sort of a crime story, historical mystery, and lesbian romance. It's pretty much got it all. Park Chan-wook's retelling is set in colonial Korea, but retains most of Waters' characters and plot points pretty faithfully. Now, the film gives no specific date, but we can probably assume that it takes place sometime during official Japanese rule, between 1910 and 1945. The Handmaiden is a really rich and fascinating film, but we should warn you that the film is quite sexually explicit and graphically violent. If you've seen other films by Park Chan-wook, you know what you're getting into. Nonetheless, we really enjoyed the film and recording this episode, particularly because we are joined today by Dr. Kelly Jung, a professor of comparative literature and Korean studies at UC Riverside. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden, and we've brought in a guest interviewee to help us talk about that. We have Dr. Kelly Chung. Um, Would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Kelly Jung, and I'm at UC Riverside uh, at the Department of Comparative Literature and Languages, and my main areas of research and teaching are modern Korean literature and Korean film. Which is exactly why we brought you in. <laughs> it is perfect. Yeah, <laughs> thanks th- for inviting me. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks so much for coming. We're so excited. We've been meaning to do an episode on The Handmaiden <laughs> for a really long time. Yeah. We were just thinking, one of the first things we were thinking about with The Handmaiden as we watched it, um, considering especially, it, you know, to critical acclaim, it was very celebrated. Um, it was sold in 175 countries. It grossed over $37.7 million. But one thing we were thinking about was... Um, how popular was it with mainstream audiences? And I don't know if you can speak to that at all. It's just kind of a general question. You mean the mainstream audiences in Korea? Exactly. So Park Chan-wook's, uh, I think his first feature film called JSA, Joint Security Area, did really well, which um, allowed him to make further more movies, right, more feature-length films. And this is only uh, the only other film that did, um, maybe just not as well, but... Um, pretty well. So he's a critically acclaimed uh, filmmaker, but his films don't always do very well with the mainstream audiences in South Korea who find the subject matter uh, sometimes kind of difficult to handle. Um, So for example, among the Revenge Trilogy, I think Old Boy did quite well, but the other two not so well. Um, So this one did okay. It wasn't a spectacular box office success, but it did pretty well. Okay. 
Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and then I think one of our follow-up questions about that was then how common, well-received, popular are queer stories, queer romances, lesbian romances like this one? My short answer would be it depends on the genre, mm. right? So manga or manhwa in Korean, uh, they're very popular. Um, so I think uh, you're well aware of the yaoi genre, right? Right. That's exactly what we were thinking yes, about. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the uh, pet cup or lily genre is lesbian uh, version of yaoi. Uh, so they're quite popular among uh, especially younger audiences. Uh, but uh, in terms of film and TV, um, I think it still has um, sort of limited uh, appeal. Yeah, I would say that... Um, it actually uh, is a liability when it comes to major uh, production like this uh, to have a cent- have the central characters who are involved in a lesbian relationship. So this was a big risk, I think, um, that uh, the director took, and I'm sure his production company. Um, but you know, it paid off, I think, in the end because obviously it's central to the narrative, right? Yeah, definitely. Right. That was also my kind of gut feeling was that perhaps it maybe was a bit of a risk. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. So this is related to the ya- yaoi um, phenomenon in Japan. I wonder. So then for um, queer love stories or lesbian love stories in South Korea, is it also the case that it is um, the main audience is straight women? This is the case in yaoi. Young straight women often, right, often with these yaoi yeah. or boys love yes. stories. Yeah. Is that also the case? Yeah, that is the case. Okay. Uh, that is the case. And I think uh, in terms of genre, they are the main uh, sort of demographic uh, for that genre. But then um, generally speaking, uh, women uh, from late teens to 30s uh, with expandable cash they are the biggest consumers of these popular cultural products, including yaoi genre. So they're the ones who go to museums and galleries and uh, pop concerts, so on and so forth. So they're the backbone of the industry, so to speak. Yeah, that fits with what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how does this movie fit into Korean film and Korean pop culture in general? And maybe especially with regard to Japanese colonialism. Exactly. Yes. We were really curious about that, you know, pop cultural representations of of Japanese colonialism, um, how this movie kind of fits into that category, if there is one. Um, It's a brand new category, actually, uh, because there have been representation, numerous representations of uh, the colonial era uh, in Korean uh, film. But I think they were uh, sort of... Uh, they had the nationalistic bent, right? So that's quite different from how uh, they're represented today, uh, how those realities are represented in films today. There's a kind of a nostalgia for colonial era glamour and also heroism that is you cannot actually see in 2019 South Korea, right? So people, young, dashing heroes, you know, uh, risking their lives for the country, that kind of narrative. Um, There have been a number of examples that are wildly successful at the box office. One is assassination. Uh, There's uh, the Age of Shadows, um, so on and so forth. So these are big examples of how uh, the directors, popular film directors can really tap into a certain kind of zeitgeist uh, of the moment and then um, it kind of really uh, taps into what people are thirsting at the moment so he this case wasn't um, 
like that in a sense that uh, he was making this film not based on any kind of uh, sort of the trend that he was sensing, uh, because I think he's a trend maker, a trendsetter rather than somebody who right, follows trends. Um, so, yeah, in terms of how it fits into uh, Korean popular film uh, tradition, it, it's mixing different genres. I think uh, that's very typical of South Korean contemporary uh, cinema. Uh, so it's going from mystery to horror to love story, right? Um, and very kind of uh, dark comedy also, right? So I think he's very comfortable uh, traversing different genres and, you know, does each genre very well and has the knack for sort of combining them uh, um, together in one film. Uh, and so I think all of his films uh, show that kind of tendency. And um, that's not very different uh, in terms of sort of the larger uh, trends uh, from other South Korean filmmakers' works. That's so true. You know, I I think we commented on this actually when we were watching it, that somehow despite being very dark and the subject matter sometimes being quite heavy, that it was quite comedic yes, as well, yes, which we yes. really, yeah, so that fits well with what we were thinking when we were watching. That's definitely one of the themes. Another theme that we felt maybe fit well with your work as well too is this idea of wounded masculinity is something that you write on do you do you feel like there are kind of overlapping themes in the handmaiden and and your research on wounded masculinity um yeah perhaps i think i can see the parallel between um because the colonial period i think you can see in different characters how the hierarchy works out right and it depends on one's class uh, that is defined by not um, sort of refinement uh, but rather money right because you can buy refinement through money right so, which is right. a very vulgar idea uh, which is Kozuki mm-hmm. the is uncle. Doing, yeah yes. the uncle is doing that uh, and later we find out that the count also wants to do that right he wants to spend however much money just to experience one dining you know, one evening of dining at a fancy restaurant, that kind of thing. The hierarchy works out in terms of um, ethnicity. If you're Japanese, you're the mainstream or the hegemonic group, so you're higher than the colonial subjects, Koreans. Uh, But then if you're male, you have certain privileges, right? So there are all these kind of calculations. Um, That's why I think at the end of, towards the end of the film, it's quite interesting that the main uh, character disguises herself as a man, but the man doesn't get to speak because she will betray herself if she opens her mouth, right? So uh, there are a lot of interesting things going on um, and really, really depends on the context. Um, and I think that house, that creepy house right. <laughs> in the <laughs> mountains yeah. is such a microcosm of how these relationships fluctuate and change. Right. And the destruction of the books, the the end with um, Count Fujiwara and the uncle that kind of, it was a more old old boy kind torture of room. movie. Yeah, yes, the torture exactly. room. Yeah. Exactly. Well, one thing that I thought was really interesting watching it, especially the second time was, remembering even from the beginning that almost every single character is Korean Mm -hmm. except for Lady Hideko and so even the characters who were at the beginning you thought they were Japanese they have a lot of the privilege of being of what it would mean to be Japanese the money and the power Um, but she's the only real character who main speaking role character Mm -hmm. who's Japanese that's right in the whole film yeah that's right yeah I think that's 
other than her inherited money, that's the source of her power, right? So she has all these, she grew up with all this uh, basically uh, instruments of her power, the servants. And even uh, I think Kozuki is somebody who can uh, serve her um, in her little scheme of how she wants to actualize her life, right? So I think she's, um, the great conceit of the film is that we are led for the first part to greatly underestimate, right, Hideko, and then she, um, we have to go back to her beginning, so to speak, and how she was always a little bitch, right? And yeah. how she was always rebellious and a bad girl. Mm-hmm. And then we find out, oh, Hideko is really like this, right? Um, so I, th- I thought that was uh, sort of the fun revelation uh, that we don't necessarily get in the original, right? Original fiction, yeah. Uh, I think from part two, it greatly changes from the original. Yeah, definitely. Right, and in interviews with um, the author, Sarah Waters, um, she does talk about that. And I think specifically the idea of, well, um, is it inspired by? Is it an adaptation? So that's also one question that we had was, um, do you see this as a successful transnational adaptation? Um, or maybe how, what, what would, would we mean? Yeah, is yeah. it translation? You know, what, do, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. If I had to make a judgment, I would say it's inspired by the original rather than an adaptation because the setting and, um, you know, some of the relationships, I think in the beginning at least, look very similar to the original, but I don't think it's true from part two. Um, And I think uh, he did a similar thing with the film Thirst, uh, which was based on Therese Lacan, which is 19th century French fiction, right? And so there too, he follows certain contours of the original work, but in the end, he just lets his imagination take, take over. So I think the end product uh, sort of looks very different from uh, the original. Um, And same thing here. I don't know. I think it's inspired by rather than a successful or not so successful translation or adaptation of uh, foreign original material. Yeah. One other change that was enabled by this shift having Park Chan-wook set the movie in colonial Korea was you have a new layer of hierarchy and power, which is this colonial relationship between Japan and Korea. And one of the ways that that comes out that I thought was used really well in the film was the use of language Mm -hmm. and the use of Korean and Japanese. And even for audience members who don't speak those languages and wouldn't necessarily know which one is being spoken, they even got color coded in the subtitles to make sure you always knew which language is being spoken, which I thought was really helpful and useful especially when one sentence would contain words from both languages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I didn't know if you had any thoughts about the use of language in that film. And Yeah, I just came from attending a, um, uh, my own panel <laughs> 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 where uh, one panelist was uh, addressing how Park Chan-wook uh, uses language in a very, very interesting way to make the audience be aware of what kind of speech is being used by which characters. I think he does it brilliantly in this film because uh, the ability to speak 
Japanese during the colonial era is great power. Typically, only the educated elites could read, write, and speak Japanese. Uh, most Korean colonial subjects could understand some Japanese in everyday setting based on the context um, and also understand commands um, and maybe uh, say a few phrases here and there, but that was about it. So the fact that, for example, uh, Kozuki's ex-wife, it turns out, right? The, Sasaki. Sasaki. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lady Sasaki speaks Japanese and Korean uh, both. Uh, it kind of implies certain things about the characters. Uh, so I think the fact that also uh, certain characters want to completely erase their Koreanness by through language and also the way they dress and behave uh, with other Koreans, for example, those are all about, I think, power uh, rather than um, uh, anything else. And through that, I think the characterization, character development takes place. Mm, yeah, you learn a lot just by watching the language they yeah. use and in what situations. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and what language they prefer. And then like when Uncle Kozuki discovers that Count Fujiwara is not a count mm-hmm. and that he has created the switch over to Korean, yep. Hideko <laughs> seems to have a preference for speaking Korean, even though she's Japanese. It it really reveals a lot about colonial hierarchies, language, class, power, mm-hmm even though it's an adaptation of a novel set in Victorian Britain. Yes, (laughs) where only one language is spoken, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think uh, in terms of character development, it's interesting that uh, earlier on in the film, before her true nature is revealed, we kind of get a sense of what Hideko is capable of when she is reading in Japanese and acting out these... uh, you know, obscene scenes uh, through her voice. Um, And as an audience, you're sitting there thinking, somebody who's able to do that cannot be all meek and mild. Somebody who's doing that uh, is not just a pure victim, right? So I think uh, he's sort of, there are layers uh, that you can go into uh, in terms of language and characterization and, you know, things things like power and how one retains or releases power, right? Yeah, definitely. And that really speaks to also one of our questions, which was about what this film tells us about colonial Korea and the way that's viewed in contemporary South Korea anyway, um, which we've already talked about. But I don't know if you have anything else to add about that. I briefly mentioned the nostalgia that seems very much the current mood of the audiences um, and I think Park Chan-wook's vision of colonial Korea sort of actualized in this uh, very exotic setting of this house is his vision. It doesn't necessarily reflect what Korean audiences think of uh, when they think about colonial Korea. But I think there is a kind of a lurid fascination with um, the kind of forbidden things that are mentioned and uh, visualized in this film in conjunction with the colonial setting. So um, I think it's quite similar in that sense um, to the original, which takes place in Victorian England, and all kinds of crazy things take place in Victorian England. And as contemporary uh, readers, we are fascinated by those things. Right? I think it's that similar kind of dynamic. But regarding colonial, the colonial setting in films, uh, I think Korean audiences, uh, especially, you know, I think younger audiences who really have very little clue about the period unless they studied the history very extensively uh, find it just really, really interesting because that's when so many things are introduced and practiced for the first time. 
things that we take for granted today. And you realize, oh, they are not Japanese, but Western in origin. And they are Japanized before they come into Korea, and then they're Koreanized. So there are these multiple layers of how culture and artifacts and goods are translated or transplanted from one context to another to another. So I think those things are quite interesting to watch in films. Uh, Maybe that's what a lot of audiences are responding to. Which is also, I mean, of course, we studied China and the exact same process was happening in China. Everything was being filtered, not everything, many things were being filtered through Japan then to China. Because of the colonial connection. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting kind of thinking back to this question of nostalgia and thinking of all of the films or TV shows that explore the Japanese colonial period in China definitely not as nostalgic but there is something about almost like this style right of like this this style yeah there's the aesthetic that does seem to come out really strongly Mm -hmm. yeah i think in south korean context nostalgia uh is about the precisely what you're talking about it's not about the situation of being colonized obviously but it's about the aesthetics of how women had their hair done in a certain way, how people dressed in a certain way. Even the etiquette that uh, we kind of see in this film, uh, which is sort of almost a mockery of Victorian etiquette, right? Uh, I think uh, nostalgia is for that, the visualization and the optics and, you know, sort of the images, visual images of a certain bygone era that obviously we cannot experience today. And the thing that I I think of when I'm thinking of that kind of nationalistic, the hero during the colonial period, the the TV series that I am automatically think of is Mr. Sunshine. And so and probably more popular with U.S. audiences too because it's on Netflix. But it's interesting the comparison um, between The Handmaiden and Mr. Sunshine. Yeah. And of course, one of the actresses is in Mr. Sunshine. Yeah, another connection. So yeah. true. Yeah. 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 Yeah, um, Mr. Sunshine got a lot of flack <laughs> for uh, being historically inaccurate. Right. Um, and I would say that it's just about accurate as uh, Handmaiden is. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's um, for the audiences, they go to enjoy watching certain things uh, and they have certain expectations and thanks to the amazing visual designers and costume designers that um, people like Park chan always work with, and they're all young-ish women. Um, they're just um, doing amazing jobs. And then as a result, Korean audiences have their standards <laughs> have gone up. Uh, so I think Mr. Sunshine is a very good example of uh, the most current example of how those things are visualized today. Right. right. Uh, so beautiful and yeah, cinematic. Yeah. You it's know. very cinematic and not made for TV kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite cinematic. And the budget has gone way up. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. 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 With the success of uh, a series of uh, Korean films and TV products. So, you know, the more they can export, you mentioned 175 countries, the more they can sell to outside uh, of the Korean system, the better budget they can have for the next project and the project after that, so on and so forth. So it's sort of a, a cycle. Right. Right. And Park is a really good example of that because Old Boy has quite a following in the U.S. as well. So that kind of, yeah, that international acclaim, he's a very good example of that. What we would like to end on is asking if you have any other recommendations for Korean pop culture products that our listeners might enjoy if they liked The Handmaiden. 
Uh, it depends on what aspects <laughs> and maiden they enjoyed. Um, if they want gore, uh, I think you can easily uh, find a sort of East Asian extreme cinema. <laughs> you can Google it and find 10 examples of Korean cinema, recent examples. Uh, but if you're uh, looking for the colonial era setting and sort of this kind of epic narrative, um, I would recommend a similar assassination by, I believe the director's name is uh, Che Dong-hun, and he also made Thieves. He's a, he's a very, very popular, successful, commercially successful genre uh, director. Another example I'm thinking about is The Age of Shadows, uh, directed by Kim Ji-un. And Kim Ji-un is also, I would say, sort of an old hand uh, genre film making. And those two, I thought, were really well done just in terms of stylization and um, sort of tapping into the very current interest uh, amongst South Korean audiences for representations of that era. And there's, for each film, there's popular elements like the heroine, female protagonist, who is essentially a fighter. She is trained as a shooter, a sharpshooter. And then another, um, the other film that I'm thinking about, um, The Age of Shadows, you have uh, sort of a, a strange kind of um, close friendship between the one who betrays the country and the one who is trying to rescue the country. So there are these interesting elements um, that are sort of built, uh, built into the narrative. You know, on many different levels, I think those are enjoyable films. Great. Thank you so much. We'll put a link in the show notes for okay, sure for great. listeners. Yeah. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Oh, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. If you like East Asia for All, you could really help us out by telling others about the podcast and leaving a review on iTunes. We're lucky that we don't need funding or donations right now, but we could use your support in getting the word out. It helps other people find the podcast. For show notes and more information about the podcast, visit our website, eastasiaforall.com. You can also find us on Twitter at East Asia for All. Thanks. Thanks.